Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. In the film, he says, son, what are you mad at? And today we're going to be looking at a question that God asked Cain, and by extension, uh, that he asks us. I can hardly think of a more pertinent subject to be thinking about today than the topic of anger, given the world we live in, given the state of things. It's a good subject for us to consider. So if you'd stand for our scripture reading, you don't have to turn far. It's page four, and I'm going to be reading Genesis four, verses one through twelve. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain bought some of the, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It seems to me occasionally we come across a word or a phrase or a verse or a story in the Bible that warrants a pause, a lengthy pause. Or at least a few moments to think a bit more carefully and deeply about what the scripture is saying and more importantly, what it is stirring up in us. And I think God's question to Cain here in Genesis chapter 4, and by extension, his question to us warrants such a pause. So I would like for us, if we can, to exit the left side of our mind for a moment, the left part. That is, set aside the analytical side, set aside the logical, the factual, the scientific, the mechanical part of our minds. And I'd like for us to enter into the right side of our minds, the feeling side, uh, if you will, the more visceral side, or the here's what this does to me side of our minds. God's question to Cain is his question to us today. Why are you angry? And if we hurry past this, we might quickly say, well, I'm actually not angry. And maybe we aren't. But the teaching here in the story of Cain and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and the teaching in many other verses and stories in the Bible suggests anger is a common 
and dangerous human emotion and human experience. In part, because it knows how to hide. Meaning, it's not always obvious. Anger comes out in a variety of ways, and sometimes we can look at it and say, oh, that's anger, and other times we don't recognize it as being anger. But it is in most of us. It knows how to hide. It is not always obvious, and it is often well disguised. So we have to pause, not so much to analyze the question, but to feel the question before we can find an answer. Why are you angry? The question God asked Cain and us. So think of it this way. When we hear this question, why am I angry? What person flashes into your mind? What memory returns? What event from the past? Or maybe it goes like this. When you think of the question, why am I angry? What group of people comes to mind? Or what type of person? Most likely the answer, why are you angry, centers around a person. Or it centers around a group. And the question is, do you know which person? Do you know what group? Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And the Bible says Cain brought, very purposeful language here, some of the fruits of his farming as an offering. The word being some. While Abel brought, purposeful wording, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. So we could put it this way. Cain grabbed whatever he could and kind of threw together an offering and did one of these. That's good enough. While Abel thought the whole thing through and he found the best sheep out of his flocks and he prepared an offering and he brought it to God. And the Lord, we are told, looked with favor on Abel and on Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain or on Cain's offering. And verse 5 of Genesis chapter 4 says, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So Cain's growing anger in the interior part of his being is beginning to express itself, as it always does, in and through his body. God asked Cain in Genesis 4 and verse 6, why are, you, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? So Cain is in the midst of an internal war. He's mad. His blood pressure is rising. His thoughts are racing and they're scrambling in every direction. The power of the wound he just received is greater than his own power to stop himself from spiraling out of control. This is where anger begins. The power of the wound he just got is greater than his own power to stop himself from spiraling out of control. He cannot win this internal war in his own strength. Cain's only hope is to lean on God right there in this moment. But Cain chooses otherwise. He decides to feed the fire within. He refuses God's help, and as the story goes on, Finally, his anger erupts. He schemes his brother out into a field and he kills him. So let's talk about the prevalence of anger. This is why I think this is so critical for us to grapple with today. Anger is everywhere these days. I mean, it is rampant in the culture and it may be less known to us, but anger is rampant in the Christian community these days. Christians and churches have followed the lead of the culture straight into anger. 
We see anger in the racial divide in our nation. We see anger on social media as people regularly post things that stir the kettle of anger, resulting in these anonymous brawls online between people who would never say the kinds of things they post if they were face-to-face with the other person in a room. The media uses anger to sell advertising. So it's very common to turn on the news and listen to highly educated politicians and pundits berate and belittle each other because that's what sells. Everyone likes to see a fight. Politics is an absolute breeding ground for anger in our culture. The healthy disagreements and the healthy debates between politicians of previous generations has devolved into name-calling, poking fun at another person's appearance, and insulting their heritage or their intelligence. And it's in some ways, and I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but in some ways it seems to me like the 2016 presidential election was a coming-out party for anger and contempt. Reflecting on one of the contentious debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, a New York Times reporter wrote these words. He said, it was a deeply ugly moment in American politics featuring the sort of personal invective rarely displayed by those who aspire to lead the nation. Philosopher Martha Nussbaum calls the anger epidemic of our time, quote, the social disease of anger. Anger is everywhere. In today's world, it is all over the place. Anger actually is more thought of now as a virtue that proves we actually care about something. Civility is determined to be a weakness, and agitated crowds have somehow become a sign of something good. And we haven't even mentioned road rage or parents getting into fights, fist fights with umpires after a bad call to their seven-year-old kid who's playing baseball domestic violence, or the millions of little inconveniences in everyday life that end up becoming screaming matches in a parking lot. Or the passive or aggressive anger that just erodes marriages and erodes families and erodes other close relationships. Jeffrey Kluger wrote an article in Time magazine and he called it America's anger is out of control. And he said this, anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick, it's binary, it's delicious, and more and more, we're gorging on it. So is it any wonder that gentle Mr. Rogers has made quite a comeback? His powerful documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, was a great success, and I imagine one of the reasons why it was so popular and one of the reasons why it was such a great success is because it is so against the grain of today's seek-and-destroy mindset. I mean, thinking of others as neighbors instead of enemies, thinking of those who are different as neighbors instead of enemies, thinking of others as part of us instead of being the opponent them. Cain's anger and the killing of Abel is the first major event recorded in the Bible after sin enters the world. And this tells us something about the uniqueness of anger and helps us understand why it is so prevalent and why it is so important to face it and deal with it. Anger is not just another problem we humans have. 
Sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, the social implications of the fall or of sin are visible in the story of Cain and Abel. Post-fall relationships, in other words, are a venue for us versus them. Family relationships, Cain and Abel were brothers. Family relationships especially are contaminated post-fall with things like competition, comparison, jealousy, anger, and violence. And all of this is on display in Cain's angry reaction to God and to his brother. Two brothers each bring an offering. One offering's good, the other one not so much. And the competition between the brothers, the comparison between the brothers, the inner seething that starts to happen, the storm starts brewing. God tries to intervene and get Cain's attention. But Cain is determined to snuff out what he thinks is the source of his disordered inner world. So he lures Abel out into the field and his anger finds full expression in murder. See, anger is prevalent these days because human beings default to anger when life does not go the way they want it to go. We follow Cain's lead. We get hurt. We reject God's presence and help in the moment of the hurt and we handle it ourselves, and that often means we get angry. Anger is easy. We learn anger early in life. Our brother or our sister pulls a toy away from us, and what do we do? We say, "Um, lovely brother, lovely sister, could you give me that back? That's mine. No, we throw something at them to jar the thing loose. We hit them. We scream. A fight breaks out because we want to get back what we think is ours. We learn it early in life. Anger can be expressed passively or aggressively. And this is crucial to remember this. We can be passive anger or aggressive anger. But we learn anger early and we use it for a lifetime and anger often works, which is why we keep using it. It pays back the one who has hurt us. It's not by accident. It's not by coincidence. That when Jesus plunges into the ethics of the kingdom of God and into the ethics of what life in God's kingdom actually looks like and what relationships in God's kingdom are actually about, when Jesus finally plunges into the ethics of it all in his great sermon on the mount, he begins with the subject of anger. It comes first. It's the first ethical issue he discusses, not by coincidence, not by accident. He says in Matthew 5:21, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, it's one of the Ten Commandments, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So the fourth chapter of Genesis, right after sin enters the world, anger erupts and wreaks its havoc, and we see it in the life of Cain toward Abel. In the fifth chapter of Matthew, in Jesus' most important teaching, he starts the whole ethical section off by talking about the way a kingdom person lives without anger. You see where this is all heading. This is a huge issue for us. Dealing with anger facing anger, recognizing the significance of anger and the way it cascades out and causes all kinds of trouble, whether it be passively expressed or aggressively, is crucial and central 
for those whose lives are in Christ and seeking to live out his kingdom. One writer puts it this way. It is the elimination of anger and contempt that Jesus presents as the first and fundamental step toward the rightness of the kingdom heart. To cut the root of anger is to wither the tree of human evil. See, anger is not just another human problem. Jesus addresses it first because if it goes unchecked, And if it goes untransformed, it fathers many children. It stirs up all sorts of other problems. The Sermon on the Mount itself illustrates the cascading effect of anger. Think about this. Right after he talks about anger, next subject Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount is adultery and lust. We don't have time to go into all this, but both adultery and lust and all their various expressions contain the seeds of anger. They have to, or they won't happen. Then he talks about divorce, which obviously connects with anger. Think of it this way. If you were to strip anger out of the human soul and be transformed in it, how could someone go through with a divorce? Well, they could. There's other reasons. You don't have to be angry to get a divorce. But you know and I know how often anger is infecting a relationship and contributes to the end of that relationship. He goes on then and talks about revenge against those who have harmed us. I mean, the connection between anger and trying to get revenge against those who have harmed us is obvious. He talks about loving enemies, not just loving those who love us. Loving your enemies. You cannot do that if there is anger in the soul. We can't love those who are unlike us, those we perceive to be enemies, if we have anger within directed at them. And all of this is part of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts with anger because if that is dealt with, a fatal blow is dealt to all these other things that stem from it. Deal with anger and we drain out the fuel these other issues need. Don't deal with anger and all manner of chaos will follow. And we're watching this all come true in today's world. I mentioned this earlier. There are different ways anger is expressed. And I I really want to camp here for just a second because there are passive expressions of anger and aggressive expressions. And passive anger is the anger that often gets minimized. Passive anger is the one that often gets unnoticed. It is the passively angry people who will often say when asked, why are you angry? Oh, I'm not angry. And you can't really look at anything in their life and find a dented door or a hole in the wall to go, yes, you are, see? But it doesn't mean there's not anger. Passive anger is good at hiding. So we have to dig a little deeper to find it. See, withdrawing from someone can be passive anger. Moving away from someone, withholding from them, can be an expression of passive anger. Keeping someone at arm's length can as well. Silence is a form of passive anger. Being chronically late can be a form of passive anger. Passive anger is defined by the National Institutes of Health as, quote, a chronic condition in which a person seems to passively comply with the desires and needs of others, but actually passively resists them, becoming increasingly hostile and angry. 
It continues. People with this disorder resent responsibility and show it through their behaviors rather than by open expression of their feelings. Now, the aggressive forms are the more obvious forms. Yelling, screaming, racing up alongside the crazy driver who nearly cut us off, and giving hand signals, among other things. Punching walls, slamming doors, the prevalence of anger. Let's talk about anger's roots. This story of Cain and Abel is so important because, if you noticed, it actually records God's real-time interaction with Cain as he hovers on the brink of anger. I mean, God is right there, present with him, watching this happen, trying to influence him every step of the way. And I don't think there's anywhere else in the Bible where we find something like this. So God watches Cain struggle with this temptation, and he's right there to guide and help him. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God is inviting Cain into authenticity. It's the same kind of thing behind his question to Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows where they are. Come out. He knows why Cain's angry. He wants him to say it. He's nudging Cain to identify the reason for his anger. And in asking why, we are reminded that there are often deeper and darker issues behind our anger, and it is crucial to uncover what is brewing beneath the surface of our anger. See, the real issue is often hiding behind the anger, which is why some psychologists call anger a secondary emotion. Here's what's meant by that. Something else is stirring within us, but over the years we've learned how to handle that something else by getting angry. So anger is a feeling. Many people think it is a neutral feeling. I don't. But many people do who are smarter than I am, so we'll go with it. It's neither good nor bad, many people think. But there's often a different emotion behind the anger. And that different emotion is the real issue. And until that root issue is addressed and brought before God and surrendered to him and worked out with him and transformed, anger will be a difficult thing for us to handle well. For example, fear is sometimes behind anger. Our child walks out into the street and we run and grab the child. And then what do we do? We yell at them. We're angry. But really, we're afraid. And our anger is the way we express our fear. I had a fascinating little experience at the grocery store on Friday evening. I love the grocery store. I've told you this before. So much happens there. If you get your eyes and ears open, I don't know what it is. It's like a laboratory of life. So I love going there. And I was waiting to check out. I'm standing in this line waiting to check out. And there were more people in the line. And so somebody decided to open a new line. And the new checker walked by. You know how they do this. And she says, I can help whoever is next in line over on number one. Well, I was next in line. I mean, that's a fact. That's just an objective (laughs) truth. I was next in line. So I started moving. I had like two things. I started moving my stuff over. But the lady behind me rushed over to number one, and went ahead of me. And I had this like philosophical moment for about 48 seconds, just kind of looking at it. I watched the whole thing. And I was fascinated with what this little thing was doing to me. Now, i got to tell you, I really didn't get angry. I, I really didn't. It was no big deal, obviously. 
But I was really attentive to all the little things happening. And I could see way out in the distance storm clouds of anger trying to form over this silly little thing. And if I had gotten angry, I know exactly why I would have gotten angry. It is what Martha Nussbaum calls a status injury. Now, you may not be into writing stuff down, but if you want to write something down to help you understand where your anger comes from, I would suggest writing that phrase down, status injury. A status injury is when someone says or does something or doesn't say or do something, and we perceive it as a slight or an insult or a downranking. We believe the other has lowered us. I can help who's next in line over on number one. I'm next in line. Person behind me, I don't care if you're next in line or not. I'm going to get there before you because it doesn't matter if you get to go next in line. And all of that translates to status injury, downranking. How dare you think you're ahead of me? I was ahead of you. You see this? It's all going on. And what happens then is our anger gets aimed at restoring our status and paying back the one who injured us. And I know this is a generalization, but I think this is exactly the kind of thing that happens a very high percentage of time when we get angry. It is particularly what's going on when the anger is in our marriage, or the anger is in our family, or the anger is with our friends, or somehow with our children or our parents. In close relationships, I think, Most of the time, the anger is related to a perceived status injury. It's our perception the other is downranking us. And when we think the people who matter to us have inflicted a status injury on us, an insult, a slight, a downranking, the kettle of anger within us is stirred. Think about Cain. Why is he angry? Because Abel's offering was looked on with favor and his wasn't. Abel was favored and Cain wasn't. So Cain thought. And in this broken and chaotic world, we compare ourselves with others. We compete with others who don't know we're competing with them. We rank ourselves and where do we stack up next to others on every category you can imagine. And we are always on the alert for status injuries that are being inflicted on us by others. Why are you angry, Cain? Well, To be honest, God, I'm angry because you liked my brother's offering, but you didn't like mine, and now I feel less than him. He's better than me. I'm the older brother. He's the younger brother. I'm supposed to know this stuff. Clearly, I don't. I am what the Hebrew language calls a schmuck. I'm not good enough. And I don't know how to deal with all that. I don't know how to get down into all that. After all, I'm a man. I'm a farmer. I got dirt on my hands. I don't play around with these things called feelings. So I don't know how to handle that. It's just a lot easier to get angry at the one who made me feel like a schmuck. And his name is Abel. Let's talk about noticing defensiveness. Growing self-awareness is essential to learning how to respond like Jesus when life does not cooperate, or when our will is crossed, or when we experience a status injury. There is no shortcut on this. Growing self-awareness. 
what's happening to me? What's happening in me? See, change or transformation of anger is about knowing what is happening within us. And being able to see it, being able to name it, and being able to stop it before it swells into a problem, all in the power of God's ever-present spirit. God's words to Cain are perfect for these situations in our lives. Think about this. On the brink, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. When status injuries happen, anger is crouching at the door and wants to have us, but we we must learn how to cooperate with God's spirit so we respond well. And defensiveness is a first and nearly infallible signal of imminent anger. I'm going to say that again. Rising defensiveness in our bodies is a first and nearly infallible signal of imminent anger. Let's say for the sake of making a point that I have gotten defensive 100,000 times over my few years on this planet. That probably is more like over the course of a month But we'll call it over the course of all my years on this planet, because if we deal with too many zeros, it's too hard to handle this early in the morning. So we'll stick with 100,000 times I've gotten defensive in my lifetime. 95,000 of those times, defensiveness has been a warning light signaling trouble is coming fast. And so a crucial part of transforming anger is noticing the rise of defensiveness within our own minds and bodies, seeing it as sin crouching at the door and right there in the moment, abandoning all defensiveness. Put it this way. Defensiveness is a red light, not a green light. It signals stop, not go. And when we ignore the red light of defensiveness, trouble frequently happens. So when defensiveness rises in our bodies or in our minds, the next move is to stop. And this may seem really petty to us, like, wow, this is really down in the details. I mean, this is really practical, you know, nitty-gritty kind of stuff, and it's true, it is. But just like in this story with Cain, these are the detailed moments and experiences of life where the Spirit of God is present, right there, to guide us if we will listen to His voice, lean into Him, And follow his guidance. So defensiveness rises. And we stop. And we hear the question, why am I defensive? We name the slight. We name the status injury. We identify the perceived underscore insult or disrespect or downranking. Just the other day, uh, Julie and I were sitting outside and we were having a conversation And she said something, and it was like someone turned a knob on in me. And I just felt the defensiveness rush into me. I mean, it just, I saw it, it was like a flood. It just gushed into my inner world. I could see it happening. I could see the level filling up. I watched it all through a clear glass. Defensiveness is rising. And right there in the moment, I had the opportunity to stop. And that's what I should have done. What I should have done is stopped 
<laughs> I just let on what I didn't do. I should have stopped and said, wow, I'm really feeling defensive. That's what I should have done. A status injury, a perceived status injury happened. And here's what I did wrong. I trusted what my brain was telling me. She just slighted you. And I trusted it when I should have pounced on it and threw it out. And it led straight into trouble. Defensiveness went whoosh. And what I should have done, stop. What's happening? But I didn't. It was a green light. Defensiveness rose. Oh, I better hit the accelerator. It must mean that she just slighted me. Boom. Out into the intersection. Blew a red light. And trouble happened. I should have said, hey, I just have to say, I feel myself getting defensive. That's all it would have taken. I mean, she probably would have said, I'm sorry, I don't manage your feelings or something like that. But <laughs> That would have been true. That would have been a good thing to say. She's over there writing that down right now. <laughs> say this to him next time. Hey, I just have to say... I feel myself getting defensive. You know what that does? It opens a different space up. It just opens a different lane. And I'm going to submit to you, that's kingdom living in the details of everyday moments. Let's talk about slowing down for a second. When slights or status injuries or downgrading happens, you know this, the speed of the moment picks up. Everything goes faster. I'm sure you've felt that before. A slight happens from a spouse. Defensiveness rises. Emotions begin to churn. Things start to feel like they're getting out of control. Default responses and default reactions start happening automatically. And it's like someone hit fast forward on the recording. The moment picks up pace. And who we are starts coming out without any effort. It's just all automatic. And slowing down the process is a huge help in experiencing the transformation of anger. Most of us have a plethora of data to prove anger rarely produces good results. I mean, we do not usually emerge out of an angry outburst, whether it be a passive one or an aggressive one, feeling fulfilled by it. We rarely come out the other side of passive or aggressive anger, reveling in the goodness of our response and enjoying the turmoil it produced. Well, that argument we had, that was a blast, honey. Let's do that again. This is really practical. Slow down and catch the anger when it first starts. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You see how fast this moves. Cain goes from very angry to murder real quick. His mind started racing over the slight and over the injury and over the downgrade. He's better than me. I didn't do enough. I'm not good enough. I'm a schmuck. I'm a loser. His mind became a runaway train and it dragged him into this emotional reaction that he soon regretted undoubtedly for the rest of his life. So this is about slowing down our minds and not letting them run away. When a high school player goes 
into their first college game or their first college practice. They discover the game moves faster. And initially, the new player gets caught up in the chaos of the faster game, and they're twitchy, and they're panicked, and they're just reacting all over the place. And the key is to slow down the game and get comfortable at the new, faster pace so they can see what's happening, and they can respond accordingly. And this takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes practice. And there is a helpful practice in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that will help us slow down the process when it starts to happen. Here's the verse, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What a concept. Imagine doing this in those moments when a status injury or a slight happens. Imagine me having done this the other day when we were sitting out back and a perceived slight happened. And right on the heels of that, I had this thought. Take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? It means we literally bring the thought to God and see if it survives his grace and his truth. Does that thought align with kingdom life? Am I trending Toward the kingdom in my response or away. Everything slows down. We see what's happening as it occurs. So instead of these panicked overreactions, we have a better chance to gently respond. The game slows down and reason. Careful thought along with Christ-like character shapes our response. Last, let's talk for a second about solitude. Time with God, you and he. Time to be with him. Time to hear his word speaking to you. Time to think about who we are and who we are becoming. Solitude is a foundational practice in the journey with anger because solitude knocks down the props we rely on for our value instead of resting in God's love. We run around our lives. How do I stack up here? How do I stack up there? What's this person think? What's that person think? They're ahead of me. I'm catching up. They're behind me. They just said this. How dare they say that? How dare she jump in front of me in the line? I was here first. Blah, 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 blah. And it's in solitude that we kick out all those goofy, unreliable things. And we sit alone with God and we remember He's the one who gives us value and we rely on him, and we rest in his love. In time alone with God, there's no props. And this is where our identity in Jesus is formed, and recalibrated, and strengthened, and solidified. In the place of solitude, we rediscover the fullness of Jesus Christ as his beloved daughter or son as we become grounded in the reality of Jesus' love, the typical events and situations of everyday life have less power to trigger anger. What do I care if this lady jumps in front of me? Am I really? That's a downgrade? That's a slight? Really? Who am I? I am a product of how the grocery store perceives me as being first in line. Really? As our identity is rooted and built up in Jesus, life gets lived from the strength of knowing who we are and to whom we belong. There's so much more that we could say about this whole topic of anger. There's much, much more we could talk about. We live in an angry culture. And increasingly, it's good for us to know this, Christians are perceived as angry people. 
And increasingly, the anger of Christians is a massive turnoff to those outside the faith. We in the church and we in the Christian community seem to always want to define ourselves by what we stand against and oppose. And we just got to know this. It just turns people off. After Cain kills Abel, God asks Cain another question. He says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain, arrogant and audacious as he is, answers God's question with a question of his own. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what? The correct answer to that question is, yes, you are. You are. And I would suggest to you, and I would suggest to myself and to us as followers of Jesus Christ and as people of his kingdom, we are our brothers and sisters' keeper. Our posture in this world toward those who disagree or who vote differently or who believe differently or who have different sexual ethics should be gentle, should be loving, should be neighborly. We are our brothers and sisters' keeper, and we should not practice or nurture anger. Marilyn Robinson wrote a wonderful novel called Gilead, and the totality of the book is a long letter written by a dying pastor named John Ames, to his seven-year-old son. And in one passage, John Ames, this dying pastor, tells his son that both of his grandfathers were ministers. And I'm going to end with these words from pastor to dying pastor to son. He says, that life was second nature to them, just as it is to me. They were fine people. But if there was one thing I should have learned from them and did not learn, it was to control my temper. This is wisdom I should have attained a long time ago. Even now, when a flutter of my pulse makes me think of final things, I find myself losing my temper because a drawer sticks or because I've misplaced my glasses. I tell you so that you can watch for this in yourself. A little too much anger, too often or at the wrong time, can destroy more than you would ever imagine. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful that your word, your truth, goes down deep and opens us up. And we find the goodness of your gospel in the authenticity of our brokenness. We find the good news of hope and restoration and transformation in admitting where we are broken and crusted over and hard-hearted. And we want to be those kinds of people. We want the fresh wind of your spirit and the good news of your gospel to blow through us into deep places and make something new. So we continue to submit ourselves to the process and to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.